Warm Regards is supported by Wonder Capital, an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar energy projects across the U.S. It is a win any way you look at it. You can earn up to 8.5% annually, diversify your portfolio, curb pollution, and combat global climate change, all while supporting the domestic solar industry here in the U.S. Support this show and create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wondercapital.com warm. Wonder with a U. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse here in Tucson, Arizona. Today we're going to try to get caught up on the first week of Donald Trump's presidency, which is probably going to be hard to do, but we're going to give it a shot. Specifically, what it means for science and climate change, and try to spend some time on the emerging resistance movement that's quickly growing. For the first time in my personal memory, except perhaps in the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks, there is a tangible and terrifying sense of uncertainty that pervades daily life. There is a renewed urgency to watching the news not just out of a morbid curiosity for whatever bold new action or restriction was announced that morning, but as part of an effort to assemble our own personal response strategies. Close friends are checking into what they need to do to liquidate bank accounts and travel abroad at short notice. Other friends are attending protests for the first time and making daily calls to their members of Congress. People are rereading George Orwell and Sinclair Lewis and defriending lifelong friends on Facebook. People are talking, forming communities, processing our rapidly changing reality together. At risk is the very idea of our country's decades-long commitment to upholding things like scientific progress and human rights and democracy itself. It all feels surreal, but it is actually happening. For me, the thing I keep coming back to that makes me think, yes, you are not just imagining things, is the administration's insistence, even in the face of incontrovertible objective evidence, that their reality, that their truth is the real truth. From photos of the crowds on Inauguration Day to this weekend's outpouring of emotions at airports nationwide, the White House has continued to insist that things are proceeding smoothly, that Trump is, quote, winning, whatever that means. The Washington Post even had an amazing piece about how Trump insisted that the clouds parted and the sun came out during his inauguration speech when video and radar and satellite imagery clearly showed that it was cloudy and raining. We are now living in a country in which our head of state is clearly lying to us about even mundane things, about things that can't possibly have happened the way he says they did. As a scientist and journalist and someone who has dedicated my life to pursuing truth, it is deeply deeply offensive to me that the idea of truth itself is being called into question. For those of us who've dealt with the phenomenon of climate denial for decades, this all seems too familiar. Trump's pick for Secretary of State, after all, is Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil, and a master of saying one thing and doing another when it comes to climate. It now seems that the United States, under Trump's direction, is officially hostile to the scientific pursuit of truth, a foundational bedrock for an effective government. 
Trump's first week has been filled with reports of censorship of government science agencies, funding cuts to the EPA, and intimidation of academics and the press. Like everyone else, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next. But perhaps unlike most everyone else, I'm encouraged by my grounding in science. There is an objective reality out there. Each of us do have a voice and a very important role to play. I'm just a little nervous about what happens next. Joining me to discuss and share a virtual bottle of whiskey are my two co-hosts, Andy Revkin, a veteran environmental reporter now with ProPublica, and Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Welcome to you guys both. Great to be with you. I'm so glad to be back. <laughs> um, yeah, back under weird circumstances, I know, but we were planning on sort of taking a little bit longer break than just, I guess right around one month um, between season one and season two. But we thought that we um, should come back and sort of um, insert ourselves in the conversation, be a conduit of conversation for everyone else, and just sort of take take stock of what's going on. So the first thing I want to do is do a quick recap of what actually happened this week, and then we can focus the bulk of the show on the, quote, resistance. Well, so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go like in the other room and watch a couple episodes of the West Wing while you do that. Cause it's going to take a while. <laughs> uh, you mean just saying like, what has just, happened just this week? to list? Yeah. Just call me in a couple hours okay. when you're done with your list. All right. Um, so Andy, where are we at right now with the EPA? Um, are there still funding restrictions in place or this top down gag order that was reported that, that you guys reported at ProPublica? Well, it's uh, it's murky, you know. The uh, funding seems to be flowing, at least for uh, key programs that, in fact, when I was, when I did this story the other day, when I can't remember where that was, it all seems so long ago, the um, the folks out in the districts, the, uh, the, the region offices were just moving ahead with things. If someone called in with a spill, they were just going doing their stuff. They weren't like one guy um, in Colorado uh, I interviewed said, you know, essentially until someone tells me specifically to stop, I'm not going to stop. So the basic functions are there. The um, And it's there has been confusion about how much of this is sort of transition freeze, transi- you know, transitional temporary stuff and how much of it is uh, the new policy kicking in. Um, I think a big chunk, there's been some confusion on that. Um, it's clear that there was a freeze. How much of it is uh, indicative of new policy? Uh, obviously, well, I mean, then, but setting that aside, we do know the new policies will be toward a smaller EPA, for example. Yeah. What do we know besides at agencies besides EPA? Because I think EPA has gotten most of the news coverage, but I mean, it's not really where the bulk of, of environmental science takes place in, in the U.S. I mean, Department of Energy, NASA, NOAA. Um, well, just as I was, um, just as we were getting ready to record this um, podcast, I got a, a, an email uh, a leak. Actually, it came from another person at ProPublica. We have we're very eagerly accepting leaks via you know encrypted um, text and all kinds of ways. S- Signal is this great um, tool for phones that I didn't know about until I joined the ProPublica staff. It's and actually a number of EPA staff use it so that you can make a call or text someone. So anyway, this new one was from Fish and Wildlife Service, and they uh, again, it's a freeze on on travel for conferences and that kind of thing going forward. Uh, there's a whole list of them, including a military 
conservation and the military conference that they can't go to. Now, again, how much of that is just sort of pro forma or not is still kind of unfolding. Um, Jacqueline, ha have you had many conversations with other scientists this week? I mean, that are that are EPA funded or otherwise uh, federally funded? Uh, yes. Um, and I, as many as I have been able to have, uh, I mean, I've been like, just as like an indication of how bad things are, like, stress level wise, like I, I am 36 years old, and I have shingles on my face right now. So um, and in my mouth as well. So if I if I sound like I've got marbles in my mouth, guys, that's why. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, this is like all we're talking about, right? I mean, it's stuff is coming at us so quickly, it's hard to even kind of organize it. Um, I've been talking to people who are funded by the EPA, um, on grants to do research, you know, on things like monitoring water quality um, for the lakes that provide drinking water for small towns and people who have been funded to by the EPA to do research on things like how arsenic affects fetal lung development. Right. So these are all pretty critical sources of research that are in the public interest and in the public good. Um, and so, you know, there's a there's a lot of concern among people who are EPA funded or have been EPA funded. Um, there's also a lot of concern among, you know, people like grad students who don't have a lot of financial security or technicians, right? This is the source of their income. They kind of move from soft money to soft money doing this work as contractors for the um, for the EPA. And then there's, of course, concern among people who are funded by other sources of, of, of federal funds like, like NSF, Right. Like this, I mean, we're not even we like this was all being rolled out in just the first week. And so the question is, like, what's next? Like, when is it when it when is it NSF? You know, yeah, NSF is sort of the big elephant in the room, too, that funds a lot of basic science. Yeah, there's something else that came in. I forgot to mention um, uh, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, has this uh, ongoing program to measure carbon dioxide levels uh, across the United States. And this gives you valuable information on how much forests suck in as CO2 travels west to east, you know, as the atmosphere flows, uh, then you see levels decline, all kinds of interesting questions related to that, that and that program could be in, in peril. Um, uh, it was all sort of, but it's still, he said, my source there said the key there is not right now, the key there is April, because that's when the first budget will be rolled out. And that's when you're, again, this is like, you know, it's like a big rocket jump dropped into a pond. And so right now it's all sloshing and stuff. And in in the uh, the real sort of discriminating these kind of chaotic elements of temporary freezes from real budget numbers, will that's when like in another month or two, um, that's going to become clearer. And again, you know, all signs are that things like monitoring that programs. I, you know, I, I can't imagine that the climate modeling budget will be the same under this administration as it was under the previous one, that kind of thing. So there's a lot going to go on. Yeah, and a lot of it really strikes me as, um, you know, if any of you have ever spent any amount of time with a toddler, you know, that they're trying to, like, figure out what the rules are, right? They're trying to, to act out as much as possible to push their boundaries and figure out what they can get away with. And um, I just feel like there's a lot of testing that's happening right now. Like how, how much can we do will, and will there be public outrage? And, you know, walking back on, you know, s supposedly walking back on some of the, the earlier EPA uh, freezes, um, you know, just all, all of this really feels to me like, you know, a very, very sort of systematic attempt to figure out just how much they can get, the administration can get away with um, 
at any given time. Like the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park that's like systematically testing the fence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, (laughs) oh, well, yeah. And it's also consistent with um, President, with Donald Trump's pre-president behavior. Um, I'm sure everyone listening read some coverage through the campaign of his business practices. And uh, I know, know, I interviewed a guy who used to run a big commercial recycling business in the city and uh, met with Donald Trump's senior business guy one day because there was a $21,000 bill that was unpaid. And and the message very clearly was, oh, he, he never pays the last bill. <laughs> you, wow. you know, and, it's like, and basically it's a, hey, come sue us kind of approach to um, <laughs> commerce. Um, and, you know, so this idea of pushing hard and then seeing who has the guts to push back is certainly, uh, it's plausible that that's going to be uh, the same pattern. Yeah, and we're all talking here about science and and federally funded science particularly, um, but there are you know obviously we're all existing here in the context and science itself clearly is political. If we didn't know that before, we know that it is now in um, the politics of the day sort of dictate what questions we ask, but also the 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 sort of discoveries or or what we learn from our pursuit of science and pursuit of the truth affects people in the sense that we have to act on the result of that knowledge and whenever we take actions there are necessarily winners and losers so um understanding that we're all existing in in this this context of all of the executive orders that are coming out including like travel bans for people from certain countries based on um, criteria that are questionably constitutional or unconstitutional. Um, and that also affects science. I mean, I, we, we just got, um, I just have a friend here at the University of Arizona and they, um, the University of Arizona president sent out a, a note over the weekend saying that they recommend that anyone has, that has uh conference travel planned to to these countries or expecting visitors from these countries to cancel that travel and so we're i mean we're really seeing a sort of wrench thrown into the machinery of 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 science in the sense that we science by itself is collaborative and international and that is is sort of breaking down at least a little bit in the last few days yeah, it's collaborative, it's international, and also so many of our scientists here in the United States are, are immigrants or people on green cards, um, you know, kind of reflecting that that openness. Um, and, uh, you know, so many people, so many students, so many, you know, faculty um, and researchers that have positions here um, are, are really scared, and not, not just from those seven countries, um, but, you know, I have colleagues here at the university who are, um, or students who are not citizens. Um, and, you know, they're very, very afraid of, of what's going to happen. Um, and, and just the sort of sense of not being valued, the sort of sense of not being protected by the institutions that are, you know, in theory are supporting them and bringing them here to do this research any, on anything from, you know, cancer to, to, to climate change to, you know, astrophysics. Like it's, it's, I don't think people have any idea just how far reaching all of these different policies will be. And that's just, again, speaking just from the perspective of, of science, um, we're all also citizens or residents and, you know, taxpayers and 
you know, voters and parents and, you know, all of these other things that make it really difficult to just um, to just do the to do the work completely divorced from any other consideration. One other thing I want to say, too, is <clears throat> just to get back to the, you know, to the EPA freeze. You know, I think in the communications freeze, which a lot of uh, federal agencies are now experiencing, I just think we need to take one second and acknowledge that federally funded science done by and and reported by these federal institutions is one of the United States' best ideas in the history of our country. The fact that we have taxpayer-funded research that is done in the public good and is transparently communicated back to the public, right? All of the, all of the research that's funded by by uh, federal grants that's done by federal agencies that is made available. Um, the data are, are publicly up there on these websites. You know everything from the EPA website to the NOAA websites. Um, you know, and if you really believe in transparency and you really believe that we need to have a government that serves the people, then you should be supportive of these institutions and these websites that are reporting back the research that is being done in the public interest. Because the alternative to that is um, obfuscation. It's research that's done in the corporate interest. It is, you know, not transparent. And we have seen this time and again, you know, in, in the last century. And I just, I hate the idea that somehow these this research that's being done by publicly funded scientists that is then communicated back to the citizens, it's all available as, you know, reports or data sets on these websites, that this is in jeopardy because this is one of the most democratic ideas that we have, right? This, you can't, you don't get more populist than that on some level, right? This is something, a data set anybody can download and look at and play with if you have access to the, you know, to the tools and the, the means to do that. Um, but, you know, and these grants are more vetted than almost any other aspect of the federal budget. They're under more oversight. Um, you know, you, you, you can't, you almost can't find a better model of, of a government effort that's in the public good than our publicly funded research. And it's and, cheap too, right? It's... And it's incredibly cheap. And not only is it cheap, not only is it cheap, Eric, but it also has an incredibly high return on investment, right? I One of the things I spent the last week doing, you know, on the couch while I was sick was trying to figure out what the average return on investment for grants was. And it's anywhere from, depending on, you know, what study you research, I mean, it, it varies a lot from study to study, and it's really hard to, to capture that because that number keeps getting bigger over time, right? Like, we don't stop, you know, getting the benefits of, of any given research project. But the estimates are any. Uh, or the calculations are anywhere from $10 to $180 for every dollar invested. Like you can't beat those levels of return on investment for almost any other, you know, so if you care about, you know, cost saving and economics, we're talking about less than 2% of the federal budget goes to all research, uh, science and medical research. So that's less than 2% of the entire federal budget, and it has an incredible return on investment. Um, and it's, you know, transparent, and it's done in the public good, and it should be communicated back to the public. So I just don't, I don't see, I don't see how anyone could have a problem with that. I just really don't. They, they when they answered the sciencedebate.org questions about science, this, this, this was essentially Trump's words, uh, you know, through a, some intermediary in the answer about the, the value of research. The federal government, this, think about this, like, of course, I can't imagine Trump saying these words himself, but 
The federal government should encourage innovation in areas of space exploration and investment and research and development across the broad landscape of academia. Whoa. And uh, so research and development across the broad landscape of academia, though there are increasing demands to curtail spending and to balance the federal budget, we must make the commitment to invest in science, engineering, healthcare, blah, blah, blah. And I, I was reading this going, oh, my God. And I still want to know who actually wrote those words, because someone within his sphere who had the power to actually say something in his name wrote that stuff. Now, um, there'll still be that one of the issues, of course, will be the what back in when I was younger. There was uh, oh Senator Proxmire had this uh, Golden Fleece Award, you know, where they where they kind of chided or punished um, academic science that was like someone could see as silly. But of course, that stuff too has often led to breakthroughs that no one would have anticipated. Uh, you think about, you know, Velcro came from studying uh, which some kind of a seed pod, right, and uh, all those kinds of things. So uh, one hopes that they won't then just, just like be very selective about it as well. So it's going to be a challenging time. You know, everyone has to pay attention. Yeah, I mean, it can be really hard to know what the practical application of research is if you're just hearing about one aspect of it that sounds silly, right? I mean, famously, Sarah Palin mocked fruit fly research when just from an agricultural perspective alone, fruit, fruit fly damage costs, you know, billions of dollars in various agricultural industries. But aside from that, it's used to study, fruit flies are used to study all kinds of genetic disorders. I mean, it's a model organism. But if you didn't know that, yeah, fruit fly sounds silly, um, or shrimp treadmill sounds silly, but there are really good reasons why we do these things, which, you know, it, it becomes really frustrating, because then it's like, well, do we just, how do we fix the PR problem that scientists have? Um, you know, what do, what do we need to be doing better to, to communicate the fact that, you know, we're not all getting rich off of, you know, taxpayer grant dollars um, doing frivolous research. Um, Hopefully that's part of the message that might come through. You know, some people have said, well, this is a good opportunity, a good moment for scientists to remind the, the public of what we do and what you do. I mean, I'm not a scientist. I don't even play one on TV. So, but what you, what you do and why it's valuable, you know, what a good time. Everyone theoretically is paying attention, maybe. What if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Well, you can. It's very possible with Wonder Capital. Wonder has an award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest directly in solar projects across the U.S. The platform allows you to earn up to 8.5% annually and diversify your portfolio while combating global climate change. You can't beat that. In fact, in 2016 alone, the solar projects that Wonder Capital helped finance are going to offset CO2 emissions from 2,791,823 pounds of coal burned. Your investment in Wonder's fully managed solar investment fund goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. And you can also support this show and help us continue to do what we're doing. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, W-U-N-D-E-R, wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good. It, it's exciting. I mean, it is exciting to see um, so many people um, come to the defense of science and so many people starting to talk about 
the importance of science and really using um, science and in the pursuit of knowledge as a core um, value of the resistance to Donald Trump, resistance to the whole idea that that you can have such a heavy-handed top-down control over what we, I feel like a lot of us, most of us hopefully would know um, as core American values, um, which Jacqueline really beautifully outlined a little a little bit ago. Um, so, so the th- the thing that sort of caught fire the most uh, in in this first week um, was, I think, the um, the the rogue Twitter accounts, um, which you know, obviously, clearly, probably most of them are not run by actual um, employees, but some of them are. I mean, I know that there's one for sure that that very likely is. Um, and a lot of people have been doing their own vetting to try to see who's behind these accounts. But the message of the account, I think, and the 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 phenomenon of them resonating so much um, so quickly, too, um, is that the power of truth and the power of science told in an entertaining and and um, in straightforward way is very compelling and it's very transformative in the sense that it gives us power gives each of us power to sort of find um that truth and 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 repeat it back to the people that would want to to sort of co-opt that truth um so we have you know we we know that we have truth the real the quote real truth is on our side (laughs) so and i think that's that's what um, that's what this phenomenon to me ha- has showed the most that, that, that it's, it's like a, it's like a pop culture thing now is that we have, um, rogue park rangers sort of telling the president who's boss. <laughs> it's great when scientists find ways to connect with people, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of essential. One of the statistics, Jacqueline must know this better than I do. I, I think you've looked into this. Uh, it was like something like four out of five Americans can't say that they know a scientist like they've never like no one and so you know even when there's talk of marches um and stuff i i hope there's also this interest in like marching to the local elementary school or the local library and having a you know making sure that sci- scientists rub shoulders with people at the market and say hey you know i'm a scientist too or i, I don't know the more of that the better oh i agree yeah i mean i i think that um you know i also wonder like well, probably not me. I was going to say, like, how many of my friends, you know, don't think they know a scientist, but know me. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty mouthy, so <laughs> that's pretty. They probably know. Um, but you know, just thinking, like, how often do you stand at the bus stop, you know, with people that, which is apparently a thing parents do now. Um, how often do you stand at the bus stop with people and not know that they're scientists, right? Or you know, uh, with your kids or 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 whatever, and or you know, your people in your yoga class or whatever it is. Um, I, and I just wonder, you know, what what can we do to just be more accessible, just not even in terms of interviews or um, starting podcasts or blogs, but just being being visible. And, you know, I love seeing so many science cafes and nerd nights and things kind of springing up everywhere. I'm hoping, you know, I'm thinking like, is this going to be like the way that we change things more from the ground up and just, just to show people that, you know, science scientists are people, you know, we are... We are citizens and, and 
um, you know, we do, it's like the, you know, Us Magazine, you guys probably don't want read that, Us Weekly, but they have this like thing about celebrities, like celebrities, they're just like us, you know, like here's a picture of Brad Pitt buying Cocoa Puffs or whatever, just, you know, just like us. And uh, I always think like, we almost need something like that for scientists, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, look, she's, she's crying on her couch eating, you know, Ben and Jerry's and watching, um, you know, the, the latest Walking Dead, just like us, you know, <laughs> just, I don't know, we're, we are people, I know we, that's something that we try really hard with this show to do, and it's one of the reasons that I love it, but, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a message that constantly needs to get out there as much as we can. Yeah, and, and I think that's, that's one thing that we've started to see, I have a, I have a Twitter list for, for Climate Twitter, in. Um, also for weather Twitter, which weather Twitter is usually pretty on point. Like they very rarely diverge away from, from, you know, like maps of isobars and that sort of thing, like very nerdy and technical discussions a lot of times. And it's like 80 to 90% political right now where, where, where I feel like people are sort of putting aside for a moment, um, their day jobs to focus on something that feels like an important conversation to have and know that that everyone um, is is sort of here on the same page going through the same thing together and the fact that scientists are realizing that they have a role as citizens to play um, and that role a lot of times comes before their their professional uh, role of communicating science or of conducting science like uh, you know, our, one of our main jobs as citizens is to vote and participate in the in the um, in the business of being a citizen. And a lot of times, people think of that as only you know once every four years you vote for president. But there are there are scientists that are that are calling um, their members of Congress. There are scientists that are that are sort of like forming communities spontaneously. Um, to to sort of pitch in and the effort that I've been involved in a little bit, which is to advocate for uh, transparency of data and making sure that the data um, that we have publicly funded, publicly available, is not um, somehow made less accessible um, by the new uh, administration. And there are scientists that are pitching in to sort of communicate why these data are important in gathering that energy um, towards an end of preserving that data and making sure that that people know why the their work is important and people know that it, that it is um, that that is uh, for the public good. So um, it's definitely a, a unique moment that in theory should be happening all the time of, of scientists sort of working um transparently in the public sphere and not not like in in our own you know labs or or behind laptops or in the field or removed somehow from quote real the real world um i think that it's it's something that is is sort of putting everyone on a level playing field and realizing that we're all going through this together although there there, i mean there is a a flip side there's just a little devil's advocate thought um which is Sometimes when scientists are involved in an issue where they, they feel really strongly about, you know, their point of view of what should be done, they they, they have this um, 
I've seen people who have an overweening sense of it has to be our way. In other words, um, uh, there was a there's a sociologist I interviewed once down in Georgia. I, I didn't I interviewed him up <laughs> at a AAAS meeting, but um, Thomas Lessel, who writes about what he calls he studied what he calls scientism, which is this interesting concept of science as um, a belief. You know, it's a, a belief in science where it's that science is so, we as we know is the one true the one true way to see the world, right? You know. So it has to be the thing that drives how much, how quickly we reduce carbon dioxide or how uh, we do other things. And I don't know whether you, you think about that sometimes from your standpoints. I'm not saying there's any correct position here, but it's like, is, is can there be too much sense that if science says something, then that's what has to happen? You know, it's it's always dangerous to be strident about anything. Um, I, I I think that we should always be questioning, even and especially as scientists. I mean, one of the things I like to to do is push back against the idea of science as a, you know, a, a purely objective, <clears throat> and, you know, empirical process, right? Because it, it is it is a human endeavor. It's done by humans, which means we bring along all the baggage that being human has along with us when we do science. Whether that's the the way we treat each other as colleagues, um, the kinds of questions we ask. Um, the, the kinds of analyses that we do, you know, we ha- we have biases, and we always have to be very rigorously, you know, interrogating those biases. Um, I and I, I guess I would just say, you know, sci- scientists—they're just like us uh, in that, you know, we we have to be we have to be just as careful as any other person in any other industry. You know, I I I've worked retail and food service for many years, and there were terrible people in those jobs who were who, who did things poorly and there are terrible people you know in 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 universities who do things poorly and treat people poorly and um you know i've had i've had bad managers uh at the bookstores that i've worked at who have made poor choices and and not been open to criticism or, or receptive to pushback um so I, I just one thing i like to remember is that you know be, we, because we are people it means that our way of doing things is pretty similar to how everyone else does things too, right? You, we all know people in our our, our workplaces that that are that are not nice, or or maybe aren't as efficient, or um, you know, are, are barriers to to progress. Um, and that's not something that's unique to science. Although I think science kind of has this. What is unique to science, I think, is that we we can kind of stand behind this, you know. Um, this sort of sense of, of being of being right, right? Like pi is pi, the number pi, regardless of what I believe, or reg- you know, the, the climate is warming, regardless of what I think. And on, on some levels, that's that's good, but on, on other levels, you know, we, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we try to hide too much behind that presumed objectivity and forget, or or try to forget that we're people. Which isn't to say, you know, that. We, I mean, the flip side of that, right, is is just saying, oh, scientists are a whole bunch of corrupt people that just go out and do things, you know, whatever they want, and there's no oversight, and and that's not true either. Um, it's just, you know, it's I just think we, in any endeavor, we always have to be open to feedback and criticism. Uh, you know, having a good liberal arts perspective is important for anything that we do, whether that's science or running a coffee shop. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that's, I just, I, I just really stand behind that idea. Um, and when I say liberal arts, I'm, I'm thinking like specifically of 
Bill Cronin's fantastic essay, Only Connect, which is about the importance of a liberal education, which isn't liberal as in political, it's liberal as in um, liberal arts, as in broad, diverse ways of thinking and knowing and bringing those approaches to our problems. Having just that bit of objectivity that science brings, though, um, forces us to actually challenge our previously held beliefs rather than to reinforce them, in my opinion, as scientists. And this is, I know from my own experience of having this happen to me and having this happen to other uh, colleagues that I know, but um, you, I mean, you go into a, like a PhD proposal or something and say, I'm going to study this because I think this is what's going on. Uh, you, you, anytime you ask a question in the term of posing a hypothesis in the scientific method, you have to assume what what it is that you're trying to prove or disprove. A lot of times you get started in that research and you're like, holy shit, you know, like I'm way off here. Like this is not at all what I see that's going on. And, and you have to reevaluate and rechange and sometimes dozens of t- times in the, in, the, in the span of planning out something like a PhD, you constantly change your question to find something that is... Um, is really a happening that's interesting that that um, is unexpected and and real and provides value to society. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that um, you know, being you know, I've I've, I've been in situations um, where people have said, "Wow, I really admire your ability to admit when you're wrong." And does that have anything to do with being a scientist? And I I have wondered about that. Right, this 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 sort of comfort with this iterative process of thinking that I do think, I, th- I think science has brought me. Um, and I, I do think that, that that's an important part of the process that, you know, like, for example, like when Pluto was delisted as a planet, everyone was really upset about it and mad at scientists for being killjoys. And I just thought it was really great because it's just this wonderful example of how we revise things based on what we know. And there's this sort of back and forth that we have and and being comfortable with being wrong needs to be part of what we do, which is one of the reasons why attacks on science make me so upset because oftentimes, you know, there's this rhetoric where you're you're forced into a corner where everything that you say is is scrutinized and any, any sort of revision of what you think is is considered giving ground or conceding ground, right? Where, oh, you were wrong. You were wrong about that idea or you were wrong about this particular mechanism for warming the planet. Then that means you're wrong about everything, right? And we want you to, you know, really stand firm and, and st- you know, stake, like, would you bet your life on this, you know, particular statement, which is, is not how science works. And, um, and yet we sort of get forced into that kind of, kind of discussion or that framing, um, and that can be that just is so harmful, and there needs to be more room for the messiness um, in in all of these kinds of, of discussions. So yeah, I think the most visible outpouring of of support this week was the spontaneous planning of a scientist march on Washington and other cities around the country. Um, within twenty four hours, I think there were about half a million uh, people that that were added to this uh, sort of private Facebook group of, of scientists. Um, and, and, you know, this this science, science march has not happened yet, but I think that when it does happen, it will be a major, um, a major sign and a major uh, 
sort of turning point in the way we view science and scientists in, in the country in the sense that, um, you know, a generation ago, we had scientists marching on Washington against nuclear weapons. And now uh, we have, you know, an sort of somewhat equally, though obviously very different threat of climate change um, happening, that people are really worried about how this administration may cause a setback in that um, in that effort. Um, I think that, again, like as I said in the, in the intro, there is clearly sort of an attack on truth itself um, by this administration and this sudden extreme uh, outpouring of support for science and for scientists in the in the uh, sort of uh, effort of organizing the science march um, and the energy and enthusiasm behind it, I think, is a clear sign that 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 this is not something that um, most people in in the country are 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 willing to put up with. Yeah, I've been really excited by this. There, there've just been just so many efforts to kind of get the word out about scientists as um, as advocates, um, and also just the the groundswell of, of support um, from the general public. I mean, I. Um, I'm one of the co-organizers of the march, um, and or the group sort of behind the scenes. And it's it was really like several groups that all kind of coalesced together. And um, there's just things are moving really quickly, but there's just a tremendous amount of support from just the general public, from various organizations and NGOs, and um, you know scientific corporations. And <clears throat> you know it's I, I I'm just sort of blown away by by just how how much people really seem to to value the need to to protect you know just the process of science itself and um and the scientists and i i don't know i'm I'm really moved by it it's been one of the highlights of the last week really is just this incredible show of support so as a co-organizer then what are what are sort of the discussions of around this behind the scenes are people just sort of doing logistics at this point or trying to say like what do we stand for or what's the message yeah so a lot of it is just you know we're is, is organizational right just figuring out um you know that most of us involved are scientists and a lot of us are academics not all um you know many grad students etc and you know most of us are not community organizers for example or don't have that kind of background or experience so just figuring out how to how to coalesce all of these different voices together um and also you know remembering the importance of diversity and inclusion in, um, a, in a movement or a march like this, um, make, you know, because that, those are issues that, you know, have been problems for many organizations, including science, right? We, ha- we have a, a diversity in, in STEM problem. And so, you know, learning from some of the, the growing pains that the Women's March experienced has been, has been really important. Um, and I just, I think that, uh, you know, as soon as, things are going to move really quickly as soon as there's an official date locked down um it, the ball's going to get rolling really fast and i am excited to see what comes out of this so um so i'll transition into the positive feedback for all um of all possible weeks i feel like we really need this positive feedback segment right now um and for season two we're going to try to do uh, a pretty good job of having one of these every single um, episode because it 
we we heard from from listeners that it was it was something that was that 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 spoke to people a lot and it also gives us a way to again you know focus on on all of the the um the things that are happening behind the scenes that maybe not get as much attention as they should. So, um, so Jacqueline, I think you said you have one. Yeah, I would like to give a shout out to the person or persons behind the Badlands National Park Twitter account, who was a true patriot this week, this last week, um, tweeting out facts about climate science and climate change and, um, just really pushing back against the uh, this oppressive climate, no pun intended. Um, I mean, there were they were facts. They were facts about science, about the park. There was nothing wrong with them um, per se, but they still got deleted, and that person probably lost their job. And uh, I saw a lot of amazing support for the Badlands Twitter account, a number of other Twitter accounts started doing it as well um, from national parks. And I also saw a lot of people throwing out job offers to hire whatever social media um, manager was behind that. So I, I just really want to say that that, that that those kinds of things are hugely inspirational and help me get out of bed in the morning. So thank you. Yeah. And so the official line from the Department of Interior for that was that it was an ex-employee that still had access to the Twitter account. And that's why they were deleted. But I feel like it's kind of transparent excuse. Um, I think it was probably a brave person um, that was like sharply reprimanded, maybe. <laughs> um, or yeah, like maybe lost their job. Um, Ex-employee because they got fired. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they um, and that was the account that that sort of spawned this this um, this rogue account. You know, now there's rogue NASA. Um, you know, all these all these accounts, and several of them have like a few hundred thousand followers already, just in a couple of days. Right. And what's cool about all that is too is that I think it's drawn helped drawn attention to. I, I'm sure a lot of people haven't didn't even know that there were national various national park Twitter accounts. So the the, the focus there is good too. There's, there's one thing I, there is one positive feedback element I, I touched on in the end of a story um, a few days back, which was there's a climate scientist in the White House now, at least it will be soon. This guy, Eric Noble, he has the most interesting life trajectory. I'm hoping to do an article about him. Um, he got his PhD at University of Colorado. He, he was worked at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies on the climate, a regional climate model for several years. And then he went and he was part of Trump's data team working to win the campaign for President Trump uh, because he grew up in Alabama. He's kind of a conservative guy. but And now he's, um, he's I think he's probably around Jacqueline's age. He's a young guy. Um, clearly, and I've talked to people around him. He, he knows what the climate system is a system and all that stuff. So who knows how that'll play out. But there's, uh, there's the, sort of the senior liaison to the White House to NASA now is... Um, a young climate scientist. Interesting. Um, so mine is from uh, this local area. Um, Southern Arizona is home to the Tohono O'odham people. Um, they control about 75 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border here in Arizona. And they said in a statement this week, or last week, I guess it is, um, that they will attempt to block the construction of the wall if the wall begins to be constructed in sort of like the Standing Rock style um, uh, protest. 
this construction would be happening on their uh, land. And um, there's also uh, an, an environmental impact of building the wall. And also it's just not really something that they want to have on their land. So I think that 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 this is another thing that I've been noticing. It's um, it is something that 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 deserves our respect. That 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 this is a struggle. We you know we may think of this as being something new that you know quote fighting oppression or fighting a dictatorship or fighting the occupying power. Um, it may feel like this is something that's happening to us that has never happened to anyone before, and that is absolutely not true. Um, we we have to re- we respect the fact that we are in many ways um, occupiers ourselves. We need to we we need to be aware of of the sort of social and political and historical um, context of all of our actions, and and knowing that this fight is not our own fight, and that it is. Um, it's something that we share with a lot of people everywhere around the world. Can we have like an applause soundtrack? Kind of one of those uh, like TV applause things there? Because <laughs> it'd be good. Uh, we'll work on that for next show. All right. Yeah. Th- thank you guys again. And I know that, that we sort of uh, rushed our schedules to try to put this show together as quickly as we could. Um, we are here in on day 10 of the Trump presidency and we will continue to be here. So If you like what we're doing here at Warm Regards, please tell a friend. Um, Hit us up with your thoughts on future guests or show ideas or pretty much anything. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail. And you can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. So we will be here, you know, until the nuclear apocalypse, we'll be here um, talking talking about climate change and and, um, and, and, and tweeting um, as if the world depended on it. So... For, for for Jacqueline and Andy and our producer Stephen Lacey and our new producer uh, Jesse Ann, um, I'm Eric Holthaus. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'd like to thank Wonder Capital for their support of the Warm Regards podcast. You can directly invest in solar projects across the U.S. and earn up to 8.5% annually with Wonder's award-winning online investment platform. So remember, to support this podcast, and the U.S. solar industry, go to wondercapital.com warm. That's wonder with a U, W-U-N-D-E-R, capital. wondercapital.com warm. Wonder Capital, do well and do good.